0: Hi, I'm Scott Fitzpatrick. Welcome to the GAF podcast. This podcast is for professionals who want to work in the advisory space. It's a series of conversations and essential frameworks to give better advice. It's the stuff they don't teach you at uni. It's where value sits. So buckle in, volume up, let's go. Welcome to the Gaff Podcast. My name's Scott Fitzpatrick, and I'm so excited today. We have Martina Jewell, UN Peacekeeper, here with us. Great to have you here.
1: Thanks for having me, Scott. It's lovely to be on your podcast. Yeah,
0: it's we're going to have a great session. Let me just run through a couple of things, um, and then I'm going to hand over to you almost. But UN Peacekeeper, international speaker, author, mum, trained killer, had to throw that one in there. A multi-family office client, online training programs, North Coast girl and wasn't a bad volleyballer. Is that a good intro?
1: That's a fabulous intro. So <laughs> I think you've covered everything off then across my entire life. But uh, yeah, grew up in the North Coast, uh, not far from where we currently are recording this podcast. Um, grew up in a little place called Austinville, which is just in the hinterland of Byron Bay. Uh, and as you mentioned, I was very fortunate to play a lot of sport as a kid. Loved my to a China when I was 16 playing volleyball. And I guess that's kind of what led me into a career in the military, which seems like a bit of an odd transition from from sport, China. That was my first overseas trip. And I think having had that privilege of growing up in Australia, but certainly in this part of the world, um, in the Byron Bay Shire, I didn't really fully understand what a privileged upbringing I'd had until I'd gone to China. We spent a month over there playing volleyball in Shanghai and Beijing and just the the poverty that I saw, the pollution. There were kids that had never seen stars before. They'd only read about stars in textbooks because the pollution was so thick. Um, so I came home to Australia far more appreciative for what we have in this country and kind of reverse engineered what I wanted to do in a career.
0: So we're going to get to the military in, in one sec, but what I want to talk about in this to- podcast is two things. is This journey for you through the military to now international speaker. And then also the from An advisory point of view the journey to advice. So, mm-hmm. what advice have you had along the way, and where have we ended up now? But let's get back to you.
1: <laughs> okay,
0: why the military, and then where?
1: Yeah, so I guess I returned home from China, and I, you know, I was in year 11 at that stage. I was sort of looking at what I want to do in my future career, and I kind of just listed all the things that I wanted to find in a, in a career, and then I would go looking for that particular job. So Top of the list was, you know, that humanitarian aid. I'd seen these disadvantaged people in in, uh, China that I wanted to do more about going to countries that, you know, hadn't had the privileged lifestyle that we often take for granted in Australia. So I wanted to travel more overseas. I wanted to, I was always playing, you know, team sports. I was always captain of the the sporting team though. So I wanted a leadership role, but in a team environment. Uh, I wanted to continue my university studies, but I'd seen my parents really struggle financially putting my older brother through A long university degree, architecture, and so I wanted a scholarship associate. So you know, my goal was at seventeen, I want to be financially independent, and that my parents didn't have to work so hard. So I went looking for that list that would cover those five particular topics, and the Australian Defence Force Academy um, to be an army officer. Kind of ticked all those boxes.
0: (laughs) I'm just giggling to myself about what I was up to at age seventeen. It was nothing like what you were up to at age seventeen. That sounds pretty organised at seventeen. That's pretty mature thinking.
1: Yeah, probably it tells you a little bit about my mindset or sort of, you know, what I was doing as a kid. And I guess, you know, more of a shock people going, yeah, you grew up in Byron, both my parents were born and raised in Nimbin, which most people don't know. And they think well, you're just completely rebelling and going, what? Oh, I'm going to go join the army.
0: Wow. You run the other way. So let's talk yeah. about the army.
1: Yeah. So I then had um, an amazing 15 year career in the Australian army, got to serve on five overseas missions, including representing Australia with the United Nations. Um, That mission, um, there's a lot we can unpack in that particular mission, but it was sort of the 13 months, the first seven months working in Syria, the last six months operating out of Lebanon. I was the only Australian, also the only woman in my patrol regions in both those countries. So the UN for this particular mission has uh, countries from 23 different nations serving on those missions. And I guess. You know, the big difference from this was not only that you're the only Australian, the only woman serving in these regions, but you're also unarmed military peacekeepers. So unlike my other previous four missions, suddenly you're the most dangerous situation in your life, but you've been taken away that normal operating method of, you know, of weapons that would keep you safe in those environments. So you suddenly have to come up with new skill sets to um, to hopefully stay alive.
0: <laughs> Sounds I'm, like fun, doesn't it? I'm, I'm giggling it? <laughs> to myself again. Um,
1: well, two
0: things come up for me. One is, like, how do you get selected for the UN? And then is this unusual back then for a woman to be into that role?
1: Um, yes is the short answer for that second part of the question. You got selected to be on this, um, this particular representation role, I guess going back in the Australian Defence was for a long period of time where we weren't on this high operational tempo of the Middle East, East Timor, Solomon Islands, Prior to that, there was kind of a gap between Vietnam and those, you know, more recent missions. And so, in some ways, in some years, the only way of getting that sort of, you know, combat military experience was on these types of representation roles with the UN. So, they're very sought-after positions um, I was very fortunate so it, it basically was a reward posting um, to go which oh. again I, you yep. know for people in the corporate world <laughs> they find yep. this a little bit difficult to to comprehend oh. that you know you've done so well surviving <laughs> in these other places <laughs> we are going to step up the game and give you a bigger challenge and we're going to send you off um, to the Middle East and work the in these East. foreign countries yep. uh, and you know Lots of different challenges on that mission, even just the fact that some of my teammates that I was serving with came from countries where women aren't permitted to serve in the military. So when you're suddenly thrown in these scenarios where I was in, you know, two-man patrols for seven days at a time, out in these remote locations, there's only you and one other person on a patrol base, um, and that person hasn't experienced women being in the military. You know, you're having to do a lot of kind of education of their own mindset around the roles of women and, and proving that you are a professional officer, you're there to do a job. And you're an equal to, to your own teammates. So, you know, lots of different challenges. And because of my experience having worked in the Middle East straight after September 11th, I was working with American Navy SEALs over there. And I'd found working with Q80 Special Forces, that same scenario, they don't allow women to serve. And so in that scenario, I was a woman in command of an all-male team. And I had this polarized response from the Q80s. I found it very difficult uh, as a woman, as a leader, to achieve the missions that I was you know, sent to a, to do and so I found I had to adapt and so I before deploying with UN I learned to speak Arabic because I knew I'd need something extra to pull out the toolkit back and I guess for all of us in business we need to kind of have that vision to look what's happening in our business find uh, those issues we might face in the future and then set about equipping ourselves with whatever skill set whether it's new tools resources education training technology whatever it is for you and your business so you can prove future-proof yourself and the business so that when you do encounter those issues, you've got the best chance of succeeding or at the very least stay ahead of your competitors.
0: Well, in your case, yeah, you, you have a high vested interest to stay ahead of your competitors.
1: And that language skill you know, literally saved my life during the war. So, um, you know, it, it was a skill set. And I think we always need to be, have that mindset of, you know, it's a continual journey of education across our entire lives, not just while we're young.
0: So you're in charge of a team over there. Yeah, how was that? Well,
1: it's a bit of an interesting setup with the UN in that we're all the same rank. So they're all because our job was to report violations of the peace agreements between these countries. Um, they would only have officers. So again, an unusual situation. Normally, you had a whole team of soldiers that you'd be commanding. Um, so in the actual team, you're all the sort of same rank, a sort of captains, majors, and a very flat hierarchy structure, which is unusual for the military. But I did then find myself during the war commanding a convoy of armoured vehicles, two armoured personnel carriers, and 16 Indian and Ghanaian infantry soldiers. And I was suddenly, you know, in this situation where I was had to step up as a leader of a team that I'd never even met before and embark on what should have been a two-hour journey but took two days under heavy fire from both Israel and the Hezbollah for me to get that convoy through the headquarters. And, um, you know, I'd never met these soldiers before, let alone... You know, asking them now them. to suddenly put their lives in my hands and follow the decisions and the risk management that I was going through those decisions when we we're under attack from fighter jets, attack helicopters, tank fire, artillery, katushas from the Hezbollah. You know, everything's being thrown at us. So a lot of you know huge leadership challenges, and that two-hour drive took you know two days. To so just
0: thrown. just help me out again, just so for everyone listening, your role with in that in your role in that role as a peacekeeper, is to observe.
1: That's right. And to record violations of the peace agreement. So instead of carrying weapons, it was our job to use photographic and video evidence of the violations of the peace agreements between these countries. And our reports would go back to the UN headquarters. So what what sort of
0: things are violations?
1: It could be anything from uh, an aircraft flying over the border. So what we call the blue line. So it's the proposed border between these countries. And obviously those borders have changed over the years. And so it's... There were a whole list of limitations. of You know, the Israelis, they used drone aircraft. Putting a drone across the, the border was a violation. And aircraft, personnel, military equipment, so tanks, artillery, all of those things were all violations. And obviously, once the war started, we went from, in a split second, monitoring a peace agreement to being on the receiving end of all of that arsenal from, from Israel or in the Lebanese side.
0: I assume both sides aren't that happy to have you there.
1: Well... The Arab countries are more happy to have um, the UN. They're welcoming the UN forces in those areas because they see us as, as that line that will protect them. Um, Israel yeah, is less happy about the, the UN being in those environments. So um, Israel, yeah, the perception I, I took from those that I spoke to of you know, being involved in this mission, from the Israeli point of view, they feel like the UN hadn't have intervened in this mission. it would be, be more peaceful in the Middle East because they would have settled these disputes years ago.
0: Great. And now if we, you know, you're in the trucks, you're in the convoy, what happens?
1: Uh, so two days of extreme pressure, um, probably the most you know, life-threatening pressure situation. And I think sometimes as a leader, it's beneficial to have that burden of leadership in that in that two days, I was never really worried about my own safety, my own life in those environments. My focus was solely on those 16 soldiers that I was responsible for. And so... You know, it's just keeping me really sharp and focused on making, continuing to be in a mindset of decision-making, keep making decisions, because I think often in crisis, the worst thing we can do is become immobilised by fear and incapable of making any decision. That is a decision in itself, to not make a decision.
0: So can I just take that teachable moment for us as an industry heading to a profession? Mm. You know, mind you, we haven't been through the war you've been in, but the mindset we need to get through this, whether it's from ASIC, Compliance, competitors, writing—you know—the statements of advice that we have to do. Mm. Um, you know, what what's the mindset you had to get you from start to finish?
1: I think it was constantly just trying to remove a bit of the pressure myself, of saying I can only expect of myself um, to do the best job I possibly can. And sometimes in those high risk environments, uh, you need a bit of luck as well. I mean, I had artillery shells that landed literally just meters in front of me high explosive rounds that split into three so the high explosive canister did catch on fire but it didn't explode or detonate the way that's designed to otherwise I wouldn't be here right now so that wasn't necessarily my skills my abilities it was just a little bit of luck on my side that okay. only survived the day but I think for your audience the lessons here in in these crisis situations is about keeping momentum in our decision capacity so I'll often talk with my audiences about that um, if we're making decisions we're a mindset and we, in the military, we, we literally train for this. We take our people out field. We try and simulate the battlefield environment, the chaos, the confusion of a war as best as we can simulate that so that our people are used to being under that crisis pressure. So in the, the first time that we're having to make that, those decisions with lives literally on the line, isn't in a war zone. We've kind of had that training of putting us under pressure the military are really excellent in terms of making us continue making decisions in those moments where it's all gone terribly wrong. In fact, we specifically train for catastrophic failure. We train oh. for, we do a lot of strategy making. You know, we obviously plan and plan and plan to a very high level before we go into any environment. We have uh, what we call actions on. We actually try and plan what the enemy might do. We can actually do all of our scenario and role playing and what we call war gaming for each of those scenarios to unfold. But then we also call, have a saying in the military, and particularly in the army, about um, no plan survives contact with the enemy. And that's so that we have that mindset, that capability of, you know, when we encounter scenario Z that no one's thought could be possible, that our forces don't freeze, that we don't, you know, we've got robustness within our decision capacities to think outside the box and come up with a solution that no one thought was possible. Because we have to do that on the battlefield. There's that lack of control and uncertainty, I guess, that we're all feeling in business right now with this impact of COVID. Um, No one tells you how long the war's going to go for. There's no... The Mayday Mm. call comes over, they don't say you've just got to survive for the next 10 hours, 10 weeks, 10 years. You just have to keep going for as long as you need to.
0: And keep making decisions. Now, I know you talk a lot about mantras as well.
1: Yeah, I think in those environments to build resilience in people, and often the mantras that I've used have literally got me out of life and death situations, was one in particular I think is useful right now for for people of all industries to use was that was then, this is now. And so that same scenario with the UN as a peacekeeper, the longer I held on to the fact that I'm an unarmed peacekeeper, I'm not supposed to be in the middle of a war zone, the longer I held on to wanting to operate in that environment, the longer I was putting people's lives at risk. So I needed to get my, my own mindset to shift out of that was then, this is now, this is the scenario I'm now facing with and I've got to adapt mm. and evolve with it and bring that whole team with me.
0: Mm, I like that. That was then, this is now.
1: I think really short, you know, yeah. mantras are very, that's, very
0: helpful. That's very relatable for us in our industry at the moment. Yeah. And a lot of us have been hanging on to
1: yeah. that was then. And, you know, we're, we're all trying to operate like we did in 2019 and it, yeah. it, it, it doesn't work anymore. We've got to shift and bring the entire team with us on that shift and that journey into how we need to adapt, modify our business for as long as it takes.
0: Very, very good. Now, you didn't get out unscathed, though.
1: No. Unfortunately, in that uh, convoy, about 20 minutes from headquarters, we came under attack from Israeli fighter jets, and I was thrown into the bulletproof windscreen of my armoured vehicle. So that fractured and crushed five vertebrae, a heap of internal injuries, and those injuries ultimately ended my military career. So I was I was retired, uh, medically retired, in 2009.
0: Mm. And you still need a lot of work on those injuries, don't you?
1: Yeah, and it was a long recovery process. I, mean, I was in a spinal brace for a year. Um, I'd also, tragically, those fighter jets had gone on to bomb the base i just left, at Patrol Base Kiam. My entire team manning that base were killed in that attack, so I had a lot of survival guilt that... I would have died at the base too had I not been injured in that convoy. Um, I lost my career. There was there was a lot going There's on that, you know, lot going <laughs> in that on. space. Yeah. So it was a long recovery and and yeah, I still have constant pain. I need three or four treatments a week to keep the mobility that I have.
0: And correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you also had to fight for your medical rights.
1: That's right, for um, medical cover and also war service recognition. So even though the United Nations had declared it a war, our Australian government bureaucratic box just wasn't ticked by being an unarmed military people peacekeeper uh, one of the criteria for Australia is that you need to be carrying a weapon not that a weapon would have done me much good against a <laughs> fighter jet but um yeah there's you know just those those criteria that you know took years of legal battles that went on you know for a long time and that all took a real huge mental and emotional toll on me as well in amongst everything else that I was having to face into the fact that I'd lost my career I was going to have to work out what I was going to do now that I was no longer a major an amphibious warfare commander a navy diver all you know all those titles that I had in that capacity were all suddenly stripped and gone
0: incredible and and yet here we are in a second career now, yeah ironically we are oh, here we are, <laughs> here we we are again never, we would have <laughs> never have met if you were still in that first career exactly but now walk yeah. me through the speaking the keynote speaking the We'll get to the online training, but how did you launch the second career?
1: It was kind of by accident, really. Um, There was an ABC television program called Australian Story. They did a two-part special on me, which led to um, publishing houses fighting for the rights of a book. And then, you know, I was suddenly being asked to speak at events. And I really thought that that would last for about three weeks, kind of the media cycle. (laughs) Yep. And uh, yes, I really pinched myself that 10 years later, um, I'm still being asked to speak at events come and share my experiences and I think over time too there's been a shift where lots of different industries are wanting um, tangible leadership stories from women Um, and I guess mine's also in an industry a male dominated industry where you can bring those lessons those underlying principles of leadership resilience and change and bring them into the business world and share those lessons that are applicable regardless of the position you hold the job you do or the industry you're working in
0: well you know I've seen you firsthand speak at our conference Way back in Hobart, and uh, we might come back to that. But just give us give us the audience a, a picture of your life at the moment. You, you're on the you were on aeroplanes a lot.
1: I was on aeroplanes a lot till last year, and, and I guess like every business, we had to pivot last year very quickly. I mean, I was in um, Melbourne Melbourne Fashion Festival. I'm very fortunate to be an ambassador with um, Hugo Boss. I was at an event for Hugo Boss, and then suddenly, within hours, everything was shut down. I was fully booked for the year, and all of that went on hold or had to convert to virtual. So we very quickly, we, we built a studio here at home. Um, we've now run events all around the world from this humble little studio in Kingscliff. And um, now we're sort of getting back into that sort of hybrid stuff where there is in-person events, um, virtual events, the combination of in-person and virtual, um, and you know having to try and come up with a new way of operating and then also the online programs, which... You know, they were three years in the making, but the fact that they launched just as COVID happened looked like it was a masterstroke from us. It <laughs> <laughs> looked yeah. like great timing. <laughs> it was great timing. And here's some Leadership in Action and Resilience in Action online programs as well. So that, uh, that keeps me pretty busy.
0: Very good. Now, what I want to talk about is just this, this, this journey to advice, because uh, this podcast is primarily for advisors in that accounting, legal, advisory space who want to work with more complex clients. And I'm not saying you're too complex, by the way.
1: (laughs) You're saying I'm high maintenance, I know. Come on.
0: (laughs) I've got to be really careful because if ever I have an argument with Matina, every now and then she reminds me she's a train killer. (laughs) So you you always pull out the ace. That's
1: right. Yeah, Yeah, an interrogation position might be fun for an afternoon or something. But
0: would it be fair to say that the only advice you really had along the way was maybe some insurance and superannuation advice?
1: Yes, I think that's correct. You know, we'd had you know, that standard advice for a number of years um, until I was very fortunate to have actually met you through speaking at uh, an event for your business and then sort of realised what advice could evolve to be, that you know, much more than just the standard superannuation, a um, bit of a financial plan and uh, those insurances that, you know, kind of needed, uh, particularly, you know, with my injuries, it does make me a complex uh, person to try and cover, you um, given that, you know, I have a history of injuries and, you know, Veterans Affairs are involved and all that sort of stuff as well. So um, it has evolved for me having, and I guess you don't know what you don't know. So, Mm. you know, when you have that level of advice and you think that's kind of the standard or, you know, you're getting great advice and then you can see where um, some organisations like Fitzpatrick's have taken it to expand, you know, far more uh, and be a far more value for their clients and offer a a bigger service, you know, a a one-stop shop.
0: Yeah, so that's this this concept of broadening broadening the role or broadening the scope. And if I look at your situation from where we met you to where you are now, there's three different roles that get played in here. And one is, if you remember, I feel like I'm leading the witness a bit, but that's okay, (laughs) is it's it's really in that um, helping you from a business point of view. Because when we first met you, you had a few injuries, you were getting on a lot of aeroplanes, and my first alarm bell was: this is not sustainable. Mm, yeah, um, and that's where I think the advice was around: we need to build these online programs, we need to build other revenue streams, so we're not that's doing right. as much traveling. Yeah. In case,
1: yeah, in case exactly. Because yeah, when we first met, my business was really just me, and so if I wasn't, if I was incapacitated and unable to get on a flight, that meant I didn't get paid. Um, so great advice from you and your team and, you know, actually expanding that and giving us the initiative to go and start building those online programs, doing other different revenues, the ambassador roles. Uh, it was helpful, you know, the um, book's been optioned for a global feature film. So with that as well, being able to look broadly at that and kind of come up with ideas of how we might be able to use that platform if it does come to fruition. So really helpful business advice.
0: Yeah, so from a risk management point of view, I think we've done a really good job with you there.
1: I think, I think you have done a good job, Scott. i <laughs> pat myself on the back. <laughs> that's right. Give you Once help. again, this
0: is within a context of, 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 for advisors to think about broadening the scope with their business clients.
1: That's so, right. And they can apply that to anyone. So whatever their business people, their clients are, what their business is, expanding that.
0: That's right. And so that first role is that advisory board role. Yep. yep. And then the second role is keeping you financially well-organised, which mm. is around... The bookkeeping, the bill paying, managing your flights, managing yeah. your bookings. And this is where I get a little bit upset.
1: I knew this was coming.
0: You knew this was coming. <laughs> I can
1: see the look on your face. This is where <laughs>
0: Martina tries to steal my Kerry, I just my borrow office your people, manager.
1: Scott. <laughs> just I can't help if they love working with me. It's okay. <laughs> you are not favourites. You
0: try to poach her. But it's a second role. That's an invaluable role for your oh. family in terms of, uh, keeping you organized.
1: Absolutely, yeah. Kerry's uh, involvement in my business has expanded over time. We've now even expanded another position. I'm not sure if you're aware of this, Scott, the <laughs> client services manager yeah. that Leanne's now also offering. So one by one, the team is sort of <laughs> coming on board, Martina Julie. Um But you know, it's a great uh, position to be able to We gain are getting that extra service. You guys are across everything of my business, and so really get it on that level and then can add that extra value for me, which is um which I've now become very reliant on. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and then the third part is the uh, actual the traditional financial advice piece, okay. which is really around your investments, superannuation strategy, retirement plan, estate plan, et cetera.
1: Absolutely. And I look at that as a, a partnership with you guys. That's um, this is what, you know, we look at where we're going to be in a year's time, five, 10, 15 years' time. What's the ultimate? goal and start sort of working about what do we need to be doing right now and over the years how much do I want to work how many how many flights do I need to get on uh, to in order to achieve our goals and I feel like it's really nice having that partnership I think the benefit too with your team is that it's not just one advisor that you know there's a number of people who can bring fresh eyes to um, my entire business our family structure and have a look at that and pick up anything that we might have missed along the way uh, and offer perspective so
0: Thank you for that. So that's a, that's a multi... We call it a multi-family office concept yeah. where you become the family administration office and you do it for a number of families. Yeah. And that's really taking that advice spectrum from superannuation, superannuation and insurance to more complexity, moving up the value chain and being able uh, to provide that expanded a number of services for people. So, you know, that's... Really lovely that uh, you can articulate that for us in terms of being a great client who we value. And sure, it's okay to have a little bit of argy-bargy about Kerry along the way. (laughs) Now, let's just move on now because I want to touch on a couple of things before we finish. Um, What I wanted to know was, you know, in terms of your four L's, live, love, learn, and legacy, you know, the big context for you. So if we're sitting here in a few years' time, what's a great life look like for you?
1: Kind of doing just more of what I'm currently doing, which is a really nice place to be in at this stage of my life. To go, you know, I love what I get to do. I feel so privileged every time I get to to speak with audiences, share my experiences, and in many ways, you know, honor the legacy of my, my fallen teammates. So I get a lot of purpose value out of what I do. So I just want to do more of what we're doing. Um, you know, movies are such a, a fickle industry that, you know, who knows what could fall over with that. But, you know, if that global movie does come to fruition, um, that would be a, a really fantastic thing to leave as as my legacy in terms of, you know, I think we need to increase the focus on peacekeeping. I think peace peacekeepers are really misunderstood. Even in the military, we don't really understand what peacekeepers do, the environments are in, and there's so much diversity around each mission. So um, lots of those le- little legacy pieces mm, in leg- there.
0: I always feel uh, very selfish when a big drive for you is around service.
1: It certainly is. And I guess, you know, my whole um, my whole why, when I've, when I've gone and researched and done a lot of, you know, dig, digging deeper as to what my life is about, and what brings me joy, is about being of service to others. And so my whole business why is, you know, I've come up with the word dutiful, um, about a dutiful life. I love that. And. Well, It's interesting because when I talk to different groups, particularly women, have a really adverse reaction to the word of duty mm, and dutiful, whereas
0: big, an old connotation,
1: yeah, and they said it's a burden. Yep. Whereas for me, I guess, with my background of you know duty in the military um, and leadership in particular, I said it as a huge privilege and it's an yep. honor, um, duty is an honor, and so. I also kind of want to revamp the word duty. I think you know duty mm. is not a bad thing, and there's lots of nations around the world. You know, think of like China, America, where duty is seen as something really good. But in Australia, it has a bit of a negative connotation. So, at some point, I really want to revamp, you know, and get dutiful out there and get people shifting their mindset to be of service to others and of you know duty. So, that's kind of my legacy. Um, and I guess love is you know finding that balance between you know time with my I've got a young family, I've got two young girls. And being here as a mum, but also role modelling to them, you know, as a businesswoman and you know, shooting for the stars. Who knows where life will take you?
0: Mm, That's very, very cool. The um, and I just really, really quickly want to—you do do a lot still with the military.
1: Yeah, a lot, a lot of championing sort of in the background for change, for you know, just to make sure our injured war veterans are looked after into the future because they're still some great wins while I was working with the Prime Minister's Advisory Council, the Anzac Centenary Commission, National Mental Health Forum, a number of different things that I've donated my, my time and experiences to. And we have got some great changes into place, but there's still a lot of work that needs to be done to, to protect, protect those those war veterans that I think as a nation we do want to honour and protect.
0: Mm, fantastic. Once again, I'm feeling humble in your presence. Okay. Uh, no, I, I really mean that. And so. If we had to sum up for everybody, just a few different points. Um, One was around the mantras, when you're under pressure. Yeah. Change of mindset.
1: That's right. And, you know, I've got lots of different mantras. I think one of them I use a lot with my children right now is, um, it's not a war stopper. You know, we can get bent (laughs) out of shape about our first world problems. And sometimes it's that perspective to step back and say, you know what, let's just break this down. It's, you know, it is really a first world problem, (laughs) (laughs) whatever it might be. Um, And, you know, and particularly for people of all industries right now is that that was then this is now let's let's shift let go of how we used to operate let's get on board what we need to do and focus on that circle of control that we that we do have control over and put all of our energy into that
0: that's absolute goal what's one daily weekly habit that you've used to keep your life in balance or to help you for success do you think
1: i think there's a number of things that keep my life band-aid together yeah. <laughs> Not sure about the balance and it's all about trying to find that balance Scott I think for me if I had to narrow it down to one single thing that I've done particularly being so physically injured uh, and having to deal with a lot of pain has been uh, meditation um, and young children sleep has not been a great thing in this yeah. house for a number of years with kids and so I find meditation if I haven't done meditation each day um, I, I don't get through the day so meditation getting out in nature, going for a walk down the beach, just finding that little bit of time for myself um, to breathe, to reconnect uh, and just to be grounding, um, I think is really important for all of us. Mm,
0: Very, very good. Now, we've got the keynote speaking. We've got the online program, which is fantastic, around leadership and resilience.
1: Yeah, so there's two programs. Uh, So there's 12 modules in total that cover off on each of those topics, leadership in action and resilience in action.
0: Yep. Um, We've got the book that's out there.
1: That's right. Best-selling yep. book. So.
0: <laughs> Hopefully movie. Now, if people want to contact you, I'm already laughing at the question, right? If people want to contact you, because I know what you're going to say. John them Kerry.
1: That's right. <laughs> Kerry is willing and able to help them. Um, or go to my website, matinajewel.com. That'll give you all the information you need, the contact pages, and you can actually have a look at all you know the things I've done previously. Uh, there's media, all those different things that will give them an insight, a little bit of a taste of what I can deliver for them and their team.
0: And you absolutely can deliver. And I want to thank you for your time this morning. Oh, uh, you, uh, this you're an inspiration to not only myself, but my family. So oh, thank you very much.
1: Thank you. Thanks for your time, Scott. It's been great to be with you. Thanks
0: for listening to another episode of the GAF podcast. We're all about empowering advisors, giving them additional tools for their toolkit to give great advice. Great advice leads to great business frameworks, which leads to great results for the community.